Hey, Tripods. It's been busy in New Orleans with spring almost here, and the tricentennial seems to finally be on everybody else's mind, and not just mine. What a relief. A little while back, the historic New Orleans collection held a four-day symposium in honor of the tricentennial called Making New Orleans Home. Political commentator, New Orleans native, and one of the founding mothers of NPR, Cokie Roberts, delivered the keynote address at that symposium. And you may remember that Cokie and I spoke a while back. It was in Tripod's first season. And thankfully, I am grateful that Cokie found the time for another sit-down while she was in town earlier this month. It was a thrill to talk to Cokie again and get to ask her about all things local and national politics, from our upcoming mayoral transition to the Me Too movement to the 2018 midterm elections. And of course, she threw in some family stories as well. We hashed it all out and it's ready for your ears. So enjoy my conversation with Koki and then rate and review the podcast. And because you obviously already subscribed to Tripod, tell a friend to subscribe and get with it. Okay, here's the show. Okay, so just, Koki, just say your name for Okay, me. I'm Koki Roberts. I'm here for the tricentennial of New Orleans, Louisiana. Wow, what's that? I've never heard of it. <laughs> it sounds important. It does. It sounds very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> Something I love about your you know, public persona is that you don't shy away from sharing personal stories. Um, and so how, how did you think about, I mean, you have so many every time. <laughs> it's because I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't where I was going, but but yeah. How did you start to think about what what to pick and pull from, and what to tell in this in this keynote? I, I'll tell you one that's not in there that I'm now thinking probably should be. So when I was four, we lived at first in uh, Chestnut, and my parents went to Europe. It was right after World War II, and when you went to Europe at that point, you went for a long time, and. Um, my father was going to a meeting of the Interparliamentary Union, and my mother was going with him. And they have fabulous stories about their trip over there, but I was here. And I was ostensibly in the care of my grandmother and her sisters, all of whom lived either next door or with us. And, of course, I was in nobody's care. Nobody was paying a speck of attention to me. <laughs> and my brother and sister were in school, and so I was just crazed you know I there was there I was just by myself being bored to death and I was not allowed to cross magazine street obviously but I could cross um, the camp and so I could cross the side streets and so I walked over to Miss Aikens which was a very um, sweet and and important in the day preschool and I walked over there and presented myself to Miss Aiken and said I wanted to go to school. And she <laughs> she kind of looked around for a grown-up, uh, but uh, didn't, was no didn't one find one. Right. And you were four. I was four, but, but <laughs> she asked me uh, how old I was because uh, she did have four-year-olds, which was very unusual at that point. She had four-year-olds and five-year-olds, and I, I wanted to be with my cousin Courtney, who was five. So I said, well, I'm closer to five than I am to four, which was true. 
And so she put me in class with my cousin Courtney. And You uh, negotiated this. I negotiated the whole thing. <laughs> and my parents get home and sort of look around for me, and uh, and they are informed that I am in school. I had apparently told my sister. And so... Um, so my poor mother goes over to Miss Aikens, where she would have never sent me, by the way. You know, I, I would have gone to Catholic school. But um, so she walks over there and says, we, we changed it the half year. We always went to school here in the fall and in Washington uh, starting in January. So it was time to move to Washington for the session. And uh, Mama goes to Miss Akins and says, uh, you know, it's now time for me to pay you for Koki. And Miss Akins said, you didn't enroll her. <laughs> she said, it was a deal between Koki and me. Oh, so my, my poor mother, for the rest of Miss Akins' very long life, um, had to send, find some fabulous Christmas present to send her every year. And the school was eventually taken over by Trinity. And I am considered by Trinity an alum. And I get their magazine. And I'm thrilled to be an alum of Trinity. But I was, I was in school at Miss Aikens a total of two months max. And, <laughs> but I am a proud Trinity alum as a result of it. <laughs> That's amazing. And also just how things do get done in New Orleans, right? right? Absolutely. You just walk up there walk and you say, let's, let's figure I'm, this I'm, out. Time, 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 it's time for me to go to school. And Miss Aiken didn't blink an eye. <laughs> <laughs> New Orleans is home to you. Do you know what does the tricentennial mean? And and you know you don't live here, so how do you how do you move through Maryland and D.C. thinking about this, imagining that not many other people there are thinking about this? Well. You know, tricentennial is a big deal. Um, we had, you know, a spate of bicentennials around 1776 and all of that. And, and in fact, my mother was chair of all of those events. And uh, my sister said to her, this is a good gig, Mom. You know, everything's going to turn 200 at some point. Uh, <laughs> so she would have loved to have been here for 300. That would have really made her happy. But um, I, I think that, first of all, we have always seen it as home. And uh, and as I say, there is so much family uh, interconnection. But it's also, New Orleans is a very important part of our country's history. And to um, recognize that in a big way with this tricentennial, uh, I think is, is terribly important. I always say that the Louisiana Purchase was really the beginning of multiculturalism in the United States. You know, the, even though the yes, there were some Dutch and some Germans and uh, Huguenots around, it was basically an English and English-speaking country huddled on the Atlantic Ocean. And um, then all of a sudden, not only is the size of the country doubled, but it's acquired this polyglot city uh, that is so different from any place else and remains so wonderfully different from any place else um, that I think that it was really a moment in American history um, that we we need to celebrate and and going back to the beginning before the purchase and understanding how the city started and who we were and how many different people we were. I mean, by the time of the purchase in 1803, it was already French and Spanish and Native American and African American and German and German Jewish and Sephardic Jewish. And, you know, it was already just this city of so many uh, different strains. And that just wasn't true anyplace else. Mm. 
Do other people outside of New Orleans care about this anniversary? They're not that aware, that aware of the tricentennial, but they care about New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, when you say you're from New Orleans, people get it. All over the world, by the way, um, people have heard of this city and have a sense of it as a special place. And, of course, many, many people have been here. And, you know, the minute you say you're from here, they their eyes light up and they start telling you some sometimes scary story, um, but, um, but often a fun story. Right, right. And so in what ways, you know, having your life split for your childhood, continuing to call this place home, in what ways do you feel that you are representing New Orleans to the rest of the country and you know how how does that feel I always talk about it I always refer to my hometown of New Orleans, all of that. Um, so I, I want people to know. <laughs> and um, uh, so, you know, it's it's kind of uh, grandiose to say I'm representing the city to the rest of the country. But but people do know I'm from here, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah. What did you think when you saw that the New York Times named New Orleans as the number one destination to go in the world in 2018? Well, that is so incredibly fabulous. But Actually, my favorite New York Times story about New Orleans recently is the obituary of Mr. Okra. I mean, where else but New Orleans would somebody like Mr. Okra become so well-known that he gets an obituary in the New York Times? I mean, it's just incredible. When Uh, I was a little girl, uh, you really did hear the people coming through the streets um, hawking, you know, their wares, and and many of them were still in mule-drawn uh, little carriage-type things, yeah, uh, wagons, you know, which you don't really see now. Well, that's that'd be asking a lot, right? <laughs> As some Even course, for New Orleans, yeah, right? I mean, you know, how about a little character? Go get a mule. <laughs> <laughs> You're also arriving back in New Orleans at a time when the current mayor is about to pass the baton. Right. And, um, you know, last year he, Mayor Mitch Landrieu, uh, established or, or put himself out there to try to self-establish a legacy of, you know, removing these Confederate monuments, making his grand speech at Gallier Hall while Robert E. Lee was dangling right. from a crane. Right. I am interested in how you thought that all went down here. And I'm also interested in what you think, aside from that move, Landrew's legacy and lasting impact will be, you know, now that he's leaving we office. Don't know. They, you know, to talk about a legacy as somebody still in office is really um, is leaping. <laughs> you know, so it's it, we we have to wait to see there. But but certainly it was his effort and in some ways successful to to bring the city together and to try to b- bury some of its its more uh, difficult past and um and the fact that you know it's a number one location to go to you have to give some credit to the guy who's been in charge he also sings a mean ave maria <laughs> Really? Oh yes, at my mother's funeral, he sang oh, the my. most beautiful. The archbishop told me to ask him to sing, and it was just spectacularly beautiful. Wow! Of course, his siblings all complained that he's the one who got the lessons. <laughs> I do remember from hearing his interview with David Axelrod that he was a big into theater when he was younger. Yeah. So that wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so now we have a new mayor. That's about to woman. take office. Yes, uh, the first woman, the first African American woman, Latoya Cantrell. What are you? And not a New Orleanian. And not right. Is that a first? 
Well, I mean, you can go back to colonial rule. Right. You know, Alejandro O'Reilly was <laughs> not right. <laughs> transplant. <laughs> Total. <laughs> First to Spain and then to then to Louisiana. <laughs> so yeah. So what are you what are you looking forward to with this new administration? What are you hoping? Well, and I'm, I'm, my mother would be thrilled. Mm. Um, now my mother was a huge Midge fan, but but she would be thrilled to see an African American woman uh, in that job. And it's too bad uh, that that Mayor Cantrell doesn't have my mother to help her yeah. um, because that would be a help. Yeah. But um, but there'll be a lot of other people who do. Yeah. And um, I think it's an exciting moment for the city. Yeah. You know, Mitch Landrew has been around for a long time now and having those two terms. And... Yeah, but those two terms were essential. I mean, w- where we were when he came in was a disaster and um, and a bigger disaster than he had any knowledge of. I mean, when he took a look at what the deficit situation actually was, it was gobsmacking. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to, to try to get out of that and get the city on its feet post-Katrina and, and get people understanding that it was back post-Katrina, um, it was a yeoman task. And, um, and I think you have to say that he did that. Well, I remember you saying something in 2015 it was the 10th anniversary of Katrina uh-huh. and and you endorsing this idea that the city is back. It is. And yeah, tell me tell me why. Because well look at it. First of all, it just looks beautiful. The city actually I think looks more beautiful than it ever has in my lifetime. Wow. And it is vibrant and all kinds of people are moving in and it is constantly named in the top 10 of something you know the top 10 to uh, start a startup uh, the top 10 for venture capital the top 10 you know it's that's all remarkable stuff none of that was true post uh, pre-Katrina mm. I mean it, it's come back in a different way but I would say a better way because mm. it hasn't lost any of its character but it's now got a, a much better economic base and and the ability to keep its children here which was a big problem. Yeah, the know. brain drain. Right. Yeah, and there are there are organizations dedicated to making, making sure, sure that, that people are happen. staying. Right. 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 Uh, moving away, I have a couple of questions for you. Moving away from New Orleans, uh-huh. if that's okay. But um, I'm interested. You know, you live in the D.C. area. I have never lived there, um, so I don't know what it's like to be so close to, you know, politics. <laughs> whether or not you work in it, which you also do, right. and and every, so how has living there? changed in the past year plus of the Trump administration? Well, it affects my daily life because you wake up every morning and, you know, see what he tweeted and whether Mm -hmm. you have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But um, it's it's omnipresent. Uh, Now, that might be true all over the country, but it's certainly true in Washington. You, You cannot get more than a minute into a conversation. Uh, without the whole uh, Trump administration coming up. Even if you declare Trump free zones, um, it just seeps in. And are people doing that? Are people saying we're going to not talk? Yes, but the other thing is is that, you know, usually there are a lot of people in the federal government who just are there and stay and, and do the work that they're supposed to be doing. Really what we're seeing is a hollowing out, and that's particularly true at the State Department, but it's true in other places as well. And that is different from any administration we've ever seen. I've heard interesting things from reporters 
that or and political commentators like yourself to say like for all that's going on it's actually made my job really exciting. Oh, it's true. So yeah, how I mean there's a lot of activity, but it's also true that I think that a lot of people who had been mailing it in are now on their game. And um I think that all of the conversation about our institutions uh, being called to perform their duties is one that everybody's taken seriously, whether it is the courts or whether it's the Congress. And even though the Congress is so hapless, still, um, they still are a check. Uh, I mean, the founders you know, made sure we didn't have a king. And I think from the perspective of somebody in the media that there has been this very strong sense of uh, we need to do our jobs really well and really right. Mm. I also want to ask you briefly about your thoughts on the Me Too movement. You know, you've been in TV broadcasting, radio broadcasting, politics are three massive arenas where these sexual allegations have risen along with Hollywood. You're in all of them. <laughs> Not to mention print as well. <laughs> and print. And, and book publishing, which also quite rampant. Which also, I think, just shows us it's in every single industry right. that where men and women coexist. Right. Right. Um, so how, you know, have have there been moments where you've thought to yourself, I need to say something? And why do you think it finally is happening now? I think a critical mass got uh, established. And and it, it was mainly around Weinstein and good reporting. Okay. And then people started coming forward. Um, and I think younger women um, have voices on this that they feel very strongly about, whereas we older women, you know, just sort of put up with it. Uh, the place where I always raised my voice was actually not on harassment, but on discrimination. And um, did it for younger women over and over and over, and will continue to do it for younger women over and over and over again, because that is still rampant. You mean yeah. like gender pay gaps and yes, those types of things, right? And yeah. or, and assignments and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Mm -hmm. You know, you you still will find a producer saying something like, "Well, I didn't want to ask her because I didn't want to her to you know have to leave her family to take that trip." And I'm just, that is her choice, not yours. You know, right. uh, and so things like that 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 I I still sort of keep my ears open and eyes peeled to make sure they're not happening. Right, right. And, and actually, you know, I was, I, the, the, so the two things that I thought in the beginning about Me Too were one, that it could produce a backlash, and we well, school's still out on that. Um, the other was that it would just be a flash in the pan and, and, you know, after a few weeks of headlines go away. I no longer think that. Uh, I now think that this is a powerful force and with a tremendous amount of energy behind it. You know, when you see someone like Al Franken who left pretty quickly after allegations and then you see Trump, the president, with many allegations and somehow this Me Too movement is so strong and he's still protected from it. What do you think well, that's about? because he's president and he was elected mm -hmm. and he was elected with a lot of people knowing this stuff, right? Um, and he denies everything. But with Al Franken, really what was happening was the Democratic leadership was saying, we can't have this. You know, we, we need to keep this on the other side. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so, you know, there was a lot of pressure on him. Yeah. And now he's been replaced by a woman. And we'll see if she can get elected. It's going to be tough. And what are your quick last uh, your projections, thoughts, but for the 2018 midterms? I think that uh, there are two problems for the Democrats. One is they don't have a message. Uh, two is they are divided among themselves. 
and and then there's a third, which of course is gerrymandering. So mm-hmm. you know there are they've got a lot of hurdles to overcome in order to to take right. So. Okay, final question: bridging local and national uh, situation here. Where do you see New Orleans, which often prides itself on kind of being its own little island and perhaps more part of the Afro-Caribbean world and part of the <laughs> North American world? Um, how does New Orleans and, and Louisiana as a state, where where and how do we impact and influence national politics? Well, we'll see. We'll see what the new female mayor uh, brings to this. Uh, and we'll see. We've, we've had a terrible crime problem in the city. It really is the remaining uh, detriment. And uh, whether there can be some movement around guns because of that. Um, uh, and immigration, the city is a city of immigrants. And, um, and, and the business owners here are always saying that they need immigrants. And so um, I, I, I think that uh, the city can be, if it chooses to be, a leader on all of these things. But I think it's more likely uh, not to take that role and to mm. laisser les bon temps pour les. Right. Which it knows how to do. Stay in your lane, New Orleans. Well, Koki Roberts, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you again. Such a treat, Lane. Thank you so much. I'm Lane Kathleen Levinson. And I'm Koki Roberts. And I'll try to find you later. of WWNO New Orleans Public Radio in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Special thanks to Evan Christopher for the opening theme music, to the entire Tripod Editorial Committee, and to Tripod Editor Eve Abrams. Catch Tripod on the air Thursdays during Morning Edition and again on Mondays during All Things Considered. Listen to Tripod whenever you want by subscribing to the podcast where you can rate and review it, which really does us wonders, let me tell you. Also, follow Tripod on social media at TripodNola. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're not cool enough for Snapchat, maybe in the second half of the third season. More Tripod coming at you pretty soon. We're working on a three-part music series about opera, Mexican marching, and military bands, and a famous New Orleans musical family. So stick around for all of that. In the meantime, I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and I'll Tripod you later. Tripod.